our thanks to everybody who has been uh, bringing uh, canned goods and, uh, for our deacon's cottage. Uh, we're, we're gathering a bunch of good stuff up here on the chancel steps, as you can see. And um, by the looks of it, vegetables are winning. And uh, that's, you know, that, how often do you hear that phrase, right? Vegetables are winning. That's, that's just, it's usually a chili is winning or, or macaroni and cheese is winning. Uh, at least chili and macaroni and cheese usually win in my house. Um, but out here, we've got vegetables winning. So if you really believe in macaroni and cheese, then, you know, you need to represent. <laughs> you, need to, you need to come here and let, let everybody know that, that macaroni and cheese is really what you're about. This morning, uh, we are coming to uh, near the end of our series in 1 Corinthians and uh, Paul's call to love without stopping. That's going to be uh, at the end of, our, of, of the, at the end of in chapter 16, that's basically Paul's charge, love without stopping. And we've kind of worked our way up to, to chapter 14, where uh, 13 was that amazing love chapter, 14 is how the how love manifests in the body of Christ, and in a sense, chapter 15 is, is Paul's summation of where this love comes from, how it is that we have the capacity to love without stopping, where this amazing ability to love with a courageous, enduring love, a fearless love, where does that come from? And so here in 15, Paul wants to remind us of what he considers to be the truth of first importance. This is the first thing. This is the foundational thing. This is what really matters. And so if you'll join me in considering 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which you also stand Though which also you, through which you were also being saved if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me." This is God's word for us this morning. Let's say thanks be to God. So in a sense, what we see Paul doing here is he is uh, recapitulating the gospel message that he's communicated over and over and over again. And when you come to church, this is a word you hear all the time. You hear the word gospel. And gospel, often we translate that as simply good news. And in fact, Paul is the person who seems to use this word gospel more than anybody else in the New Testament. It's his way of trying to sort of capture succinctly the incredibly extraordinary reality that people who put their faith in Christ now live in. The world is totally different as a result of this experience, Paul says, and capturing all that, 
he just sort of sums up as the gospel. And he gives them a pretty clear articulation here of sort of the gospel formula, if you will. That is, that Christ lived a real life. Christ died a real death. Christ was so dead that he was buried. Then, three days later, Christ rose from the dead in a real resurrection. And that resurrection was so real that he appeared first to his best friend, Cephas, that is Peter, then to his closest circle of friends, the twelve, and then to 500 people in public. And some of those people, Paul says, they're still living. They were eyewitnesses to this very real resurrection. The resurrection, Paul says, the reality of the resurrection is the thing of first importance. That is what should be proclaimed over and over and over again. That's what you guys, that's what you should be centered around, church. It's the reality of the resurrection. Why? So what? Jesus rose from the dead. Now, about a hundred years after the resurrection, there were already people starting to suggest that that this whole resurrection story is some more is more of a metaphor. It's more of a spiritual thing that Jesus didn't really die; he just took a really long nap. Uh, that he didn't really that this he wasn't really dead; he was just only sort of dead. Little Princess Bride reference for you if you are interested. Um, that that this wasn't altogether true. Now I don't know about you, but I don't actually hear people nowadays questioning the resurrection. I don't actually hear people saying, I don't really believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. Why do you think that's so easy for us to do today, to believe that somebody could die and, and come back to life? Well, it's because we hear stories about it all the time. Through medical technology today, we hear stories all the time about people who, I mean, people do this for, on purpose. We're going to need to do this really dangerous surgery, and in order to do this surgery, we're going to actually stop your heart. Okay. To reset your heart rhythm, we're going to actually stop your heart, and then we're going to reset it. Sounds good. Can, can I play golf on Tuesday? Like, like, we take this stuff for granted. So powerful are we with our medical technology. People don't really question the possibility that somebody can come back from the dead. We know stories of that. The real question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter to me? Why does it matter to you? Why does it matter to the world that Jesus rose from the dead? And the answer, simply, is that Jesus raising, being risen from the dead being raised by God's power through in the middle of human history, confirms for us how the end of all history is going to turn out. Basically, it's God saying in the middle of human history, this all has a happy ending. This is all going to turn out for the best. That what is so terrible in the moment ultimately becomes a thing of ultimate good. 
or put a different way, all the things that we believe might have the last word in our lives never do because we, in Christ, are raised from the dead. The resurrection is not just the end of fear. It is not just the end of being afraid of that ultimate thing, death, and never being afraid of that again. The resurrection is the end of the fear of fear. We don't need to be afraid of being afraid ever again. That is why the resurrection is of first importance. And to understand this, I was, I've been listening to a, a book on, on Audible, Audible um, great book, Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, a story of underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants. And one of the things that he wants to un- explore in the book is how what seems like a really awful liability can often turn into an amazing asset. That the thing that you think is going to be so destructive in your life actually becomes a really great thing. And one of the stories that he tells is the story of London during the Blitz, during the excessive bombing by the German army, uh, German Air Force, I should say, at the beginning of World War II. The, German, the British government was frankly really worried about the Blitz because they thought it was basically going to bring London to its knees. They were convinced that when this carpet bombing began, that people were going to be so terrified by the experience that they were going to flee, that they would leave their their jobs, they would leave their work, they would leave all those things that were necessary for the war effort to continue, they would run to the countryside, and basically the entire war effort would be crippled. They built asylums on the edge of the city, preparing to receive all the people who were traumatized by the repeated bombings. They thought about building underground bunkers and they decided against it because they were convinced that if people went into those bunkers, they would never come out again. Nobody was more surprised by the result of the Blitz than the British government itself. Because what they discovered and could never fully puzzle out until after the war, was the fact that, yes, indeed, when the bombs came, buildings were destroyed and people died. But the people who lived were incredibly resilient. The people who either experienced a near miss, that is, their, build, their, their home may have gotten destroyed, but they survived it, and the people who experienced a remote miss, that is, those people who heard the sirens, went out into their back garden, hid in their, hid in their little uh, foxhole, and then heard the sound of the bombs, but then it, it ultimately stopped and they could get out, of the, get out of their foxhole and go back to life, those people became incredibly courageous. They... Uh, it was, uh, at first it was seemed, well, this is just sort of the British stiff upper lip. But in fact, there was something much deeper going on. It was the recognition that they had had an experience that they had survived and they were now stronger as a result of it. Consider this. It's a, from the diary of a young woman whose house had been shaken by a nearby explosion during the Blitz. She wrote, 
I lay there feeling indescribably happy and triumphant. I kept on saying to myself, I've been bombed. I kept on saying to myself over and over again, trying the phrase on like a new dress to see how it fitted. I've been bombed. I've been bombed. Me. It seems a terrible thing to say when many people were killed or injured last night, but never in my whole life have I ever experienced such pure and flawless happiness. Isn't that extraordinary? What the Apostle Paul wants to say to us, what he is saying to the Corinthian church is this. Because of the gospel, because of the truth that Jesus died and was risen again by by God's power, and because you are now in Christ, you've been bombed. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you has happened to you. What happened to Christ happened to you, and guess what? You lived. Not only did you live, but you live in a new life. You now enter into a new, triumphant way of being, just like Christ does. You are not the same anymore, because Christ died and was raised, and so were you. You've been bombed. Jesus Christ died a real death, had a real burial, arose in a real resurrection, appeared as a real person, and now you are living a new kind of reality as a result. That's the gospel. The Corinthian church seems to have utterly forgotten this as the first thing, as the first truth. Throughout this letter, we've seen Paul pulling his hair out Because instead of focusing on the reality of this resurrection, they have been competing with each other, and they have been suing each other, and they have been inappropriately sleeping with each other, and they've been basically living an old life, the same old life that they've always lived, and they've been living, uh, focusing on the little things of spiritual gifts when they should be celebrating and living into the big thing, which is the power of the resurrection. They forgot the first thing. So, have we? What is it that we focus on? What is it that we spend our time as the church of Jesus Christ in the United States in the 21st century? What do we focus on that is different from other than and less than the resurrection? What do we spend our time talking about? What do we spend our time fixated on that is not the reality of the resurrection in our lives? As a pastor, I have to confess I'm sure the word resurrection doesn't come out of my mouth every Sunday. And according to the Apostle Paul, it should. That should be the only thing I talk about every Sunday, just to remind you over and over again, in case you forgot, you are not who you think you are. You are infinitely more because you are in Christ and you died. You've been bombed. But in Christ, you've been risen. You have been raised up with Christ. Your true self, your real self is hidden with Christ. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, and that part is permanent. That part is indestructible. And that reality should make you, as this amazing young woman post-Blitz was able to say, indescribably happy. Paul is not 
indescribably happy. He's working it out. But he still has some pretty significant pain in his own life. And he's been working that pain out. And like this woman who's been bombed, Paul has had to go through some really hard things in his own life and seen the alchemy of, of God's grace and love transform that for, his, for God's glory. And the fullness of that pain, I think, actually gets captured in this really extraordinary phrase that I wanted to end our Scripture text on, in which he describes himself as, verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, Christ appeared to me. That word, the word for untimely born, is the, a, the Greek word ektroma. It's really actually difficult to translate because it doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. It's actually not used very often. We might assume that it basically means that I came late, which would make sense, wouldn't it? Those of us who know the story of the Apostle Paul, we know that he was busy persecuting Christians. He met Jesus for the first time as the resurrected Christ. He didn't ever hang out with Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. He wasn't part of the Twelve. He, as it were, didn't get to, the, to slowly grow in his relationship with Jesus and begin to have, have that revelation of who God was show up in a slow, nurtured way. The word ektroma has as its, that word, ek, the, the, the prefix ex sort of means pushed out, abrupt, rushed. Paul says, while Paul and the twelve, while Peter and the twelve had this slow unfolding of this experience, for me it was this really violent experience on the road to Damascus. But there's more to it than that. In modern Greek, this word, ektroma, denotes monster or freak. It's a really ugly word. And it makes me think that Paul is also thinking about the names that he's been called by Christians when he was out persecuting them. Historians like to point out that Paul was basically a short, squat, bald, ugly guy. And we can imagine, can't we, that this short, squat, bald, ugly guy living in this rage, going after Christians, would have gotten a few names associated with him, like Ectroma. I'm an ectroma. I'm a monster. I am something, an abomination, he says. These are, that's a hard word. And it speaks to really deep, deep pain. And what Paul then goes on to say is, the grace of God came to me in a form that was really different from the way that Peter and the Twelve got it. Because you'll all remember that while they were in Jerusalem experiencing 
Pentecost. And while they were in Jerusalem seeing God doing all these amazing things, I was actively persecuting them. I was actually going, against, going after Christ. And he says, but then, he then says, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But this is, this is Paul for you. Instead of this making him shy or reserved or hesitant, Paul instead is bold, saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. With this little word, Ectroma, Paul sums up his whole I've been bombed story, and he says what you would think would be a liability, what you would think would totally destroy me, what you think would completely disqualify me for the work of God. I want to tell you by God's grace, I can, work, I can outwork anybody. I can outgospel anybody. I'm so passionate about this because I know that who I am and what I'm doing and the call on my life only comes from God. What is your liability? What is the story you've been telling yourself that disqualifies you from fully living into the resurrection life that God has called you to? We all have a story. We all have pain. We all have secret shames. We all have things that we are deeply affected by. We all have those woundings. We all have those scars. We all have those failures. We all have something deep inside of us that says, that little voice that says, and it's not the voice of God, but the voice of the accuser that says, you really aren't good enough. You really aren't enough to be used by God in a meaningful way. And what Paul wants to say as bluntly as possible to the Corinthian church is, I, am, I was considered a freak and a monster by the church of God and by God's grace, I am now the chief apostle working it every single day for your sake. This is the gospel upon which you stand, and your salvation is getting worked out day in and day out as you stand on it. What is your story? What is the story that's keeping you from being a no-holds-barred, 100% all-in resurrectionist. I want you to walk out of this room today committing yourself not to be a Christian anymore. At least not just a Christian. Because to be just a Christian in the United States means that you assent to the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and that he rose again and I believe it. And in fact, we even just sang it. And so because I sang it, I must believe it and it must be true. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying it's not enough for you just to believe in it. He's calling us to stand on it, to make it the defining reality of our life. And that's why I'm urging you to be, from this day on, a resurrectionist. 
to walk into life and to confront every single problem, every single source of pain, violence, destruction, injustice, and hurt that you see in the world. And every time you see it, to go, oh wait, I know what the answer to this problem is. It's the power of God, His love, His grace, made manifest through the resurrection. This, whatever it is, doesn't have the last word. The resurrection always does. Are you tracking with me even a little bit? To be a resurrectionist is to celebrate, weird as it sounds, to celebrate just how bad things are, knowing that whatever's happening right now, it doesn't have the last say, that a greater thing is coming. I want to give you another little excerpt from Gladwell's book. This is, um, uh, this is a, a, another experience from another person who experienced the Blitz. In the midst of the Blitz, a middle-aged laborer in a button factory was asked if he wanted to be evacuated to the countryside. He had been bombed out of his house twice. But each time he and his wife had been fine, he refused. What? And miss all this? He exclaimed. Not for all the gold in China. There's nothing, there's never been nothing like it, never, and never will be again. He had been so empowered by the experience of surviving his house getting bombed out, not once but twice. He's like, and miss the show? There's never been anything like this, and there never will be again. Why would I want to miss this? I don't know about you. Some of you have lived literally twice as long as I have. I get that. But where we are in this country right now, I've never seen anything like it. Okay? Where the world is right now, where we're having real, honest conversations about the destruction of the environment, about, about not only economic and political, but also environmental refugees, about the rise of nationalism all around the world, eclipsing democracy, eclipsing the ways, all the things we've stood up for forever, the things we celebrate this weekend that people lived and died for, We've never seen anything like this. Amen? And I don't like it. Do you? And we have a choice to make. Either we run to the countryside, metaphorically, or we say, wait a minute, I've been bombed. My identity, my life is in Christ, and I've died. And in Christ, I've been lifted up and risen again. And in Christ, that's who I really am. What in the world do I need to be afraid of? Why would I want to miss this? And why wouldn't I want to keep making buttons or trying on dresses or doing all the things that real life and real love call me to do for the sake of seeing God's grace and God's gospel reach every corner of my neighborhood, my community, my state, and my world.
Do you see why Paul's so activated right now? Why he spent 14 chapters trying to communicate to the people of God? It's all about you. You've been uniquely gifted and empowered. Nobody can do in the body of Christ what you as an individual are called to do. Nobody else can do that job for you. Oh, and by the way, it's not about you. It's about the body of Christ and you having your role building up the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can be Christ out in the world. And so he says, take your stand on this. Take your stand and once and for all commit yourself to being a resurrectionist to letting the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that reality define absolutely every part of your life. Let that define you. Because there's never been another time like this, and there never will be again. This is our time to be Christ's church in the world. Amen? So, Father... It is by your grace that Jesus was raised from the dead. Your power that Paul celebrates and that we receive once again. Apart from you, we are dead. In you, death is just a temporary problem. people of God, commit yourself in this moment of silence in whatever way you have, in whatever halting, faltering, limited way you feel like you can today, to simply say, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. I want my life to be empowered by your love. And I want to be a part of you changing the world through your resurrection love. Let God know this morning that you want that. And if you don't want it, then maybe you just want to want it. And that's okay too. Hear our hearts loving God, and meet us here. Amen.